Hello, and welcome to episode 146 of Constructing Comics, a podcast building stories, one page and one panel at a time. On this episode, we have an interview with Jay Gonzo, creator of Lomano del Destino, currently on Kickstarter and running till November 3rd, 2020. Lomano del Destino tells the tales of a once champion luchador who, after being betrayed by his friends and unmasked in the ring, agrees to a Faustian bargain with a mysterious promoter. He gains the new powers and the identity of La Mano del Destino in order to exact revenge on his betrayers. Uh, Jay, thanks so much for, for uh, joining us. Uh, tell us a little bit more about yourself in the comic. Oh, well, thanks for having me. Um, uh, well, my name's Jay Gonzo. I'm the, the writer, artist, everything on, uh, on La Mano del Destino. Um, I mean, I've been uh, doing art and design for most of my life now. I spent uh, spent a good chunk of my life uh, doing graphic design and art direction and creative direction at ad agencies. Uh, kind of warmed my way through. I worked, ended up working at uh, in that capacity at uh, Todd McFarlane for a while. Oh, wow. For like a few years. Uh, I ended up leaving there and kind of trying to want to stay in comics. I was out pitching ideas and showing portfolio pieces. And originally, Lamano was just a portfolio idea I had. And it got like the biggest response from everyone, every editor I talked to in the comics community. And there were, you know, I got, I got encouraged by some cool people to like, you know, uh, like they're not, they're not going to do it, but they want me to do it. They're like, this is cool. We'll get it in the world. So I ended up kind of putting my money where my mouth is and, and uh, self-publishing my own comic. Uh, so I started in 2011, finally got six issues together and putting my trade paper back out. Um, I guess that's the short, short version of, of me. So um, you said it was a portfolio piece. I mean, I guess maybe you were, were showing it around, but was sort of the idea something that you had been carrying around in your head for, for a long time? Or was it just sort of like some cool sketches and then, you know, people like sort of vibe with it. And then you're like, you know, I need to I need to build the story from there. Um, well, I always wanted to do like a luchador story. And I kept I kept seeing luchadors in American comics and in American movies and stuff. And they never they never wrestled. And they were like always kind of a punchline mm -hmm. and kind of uh, I was just like like luchadors are heroes to me and i i kept getting like bummed out with that so like in my head i was like yeah someone needs to do a comic where like the luchadors are heroes and we're like where the wrestling is important and you know someone needs to do something where like the bright vibrant colors of like mexico are there as opposed to the you know brown sepia tone you see in american movies whenever they cut to mexico and so um i just did it as kind of like a um kind of like an fu to the industry you know like mm -hmm. this is what luchadors should be and the story was there um i you know i i have this i you know um what is it like Michael Chabon says that like all writers tell the same story. So I tend to always tell the story of like identity versus destiny. You know, like the, the idea of like, who, who do you get to be, right? Do you get to be who you know yourself to be, or do you get to be who everyone thinks you are? And then like, how do you reconcile the two? And so it just dawned on me that like Lucha Libre was like the perfect heightened extension of identity to explore those themes and ideas. And then I could set it in the sixties because that's kind of the heyday of the luchador. And then I could, uh, I could do everything I love about comics. I could do Silver Age, like bombastic operatic storytelling. I could do kind of that Jack Kirby art style, like that Silver Age kind of Marvel house style. I could do luchadors, I could do wrestling. I could create this weird kind of like else world Mexico where like Lucha Libre is the most important thing in the world. And it just all kind of like clicked into like, like, oh man, this could be everything I want it to be. Like I can do like my um, limited color palette and like keep it very Latino. I can, you know, have the luchadors walking around in suits. I can have them wrestling, you know, it just, as, you know, so I, I had the, the nugget of the idea, um, and then I had done, I did nine pages, I think, in that original portfolio, and everyone was kind of, like, really digging on it. Guys like Bob Schreck were telling me he loved it, and then uh, Dark Horse was, like, interested. Like, they, because I had been on the deck to do another Dark Horse project at that time that got, uh, that I didn't get. Mm -hmm. But they're like, well, what else do you have? And, I, like, I was showing them my portfolio, and they're like, this is cool. Like, what is this? And I started telling them the story. I'm like, oh, it's this guy. He makes his, you know, you know Faustian bargain. It's kind of like him deal with the devil sort of thing. 
And um, they're like, yeah, like, let me see the rest of this. Like, I want to see this whole first issue. So just to kind of audition for Dark Horse, I had to like do the entire first issue. And that's when I, that's when I went for more than just like a, a, a luchador who makes a deal with this, like, you know, Faustian bargain to like, well, what world does he live in? Like, why is luchador, like, lucha libre important? And I kind of, you know, I started thinking about the Mexico I wanted it to be. I started thinking about like the, how lucha libre came to be. Like, in my head, it's a, lucha libre in this world is as important as auto racing is in like speed racers world, right? Like, it's the only thing that seems to happen in that world and everybody's involved in it mm-hmm. and everything lives in kind of service of it. But I wanted to kind of like flesh out the mechanics of that a little better. So, um, yeah, I mean, I just kind of, you know, I, I just dreamed up this world and like the kind of parameters of it. You know, like in my head, it's like, what if Mexico was as proper, prosperous as the U.S. post-World War II? What does that look like in like 1963, right? Like, right, the, just the height of like, you know, the jet age, like that, that uh, you know, like American optimism or that kind of futurist optimism is like at its height, you know, like Googie architecture is everywhere, like a mid-century modern, everything's clean and modern. We were just in love with the idea of the future and modernity in a way that we don't embrace anymore. You know, like we kind of, we're kind of nostalgia junkies these days, which is ironic because I'm doing a nostalgic view of futurism. So uh, yeah, you know, and then I started like, you know, when it came time, like, you know, Dark Horse ultimately passed, I shopped it to some other places that loved it. You know, at that point they were like, this is cool. You, you really need to put this out. So then I was like, all right, you know, like, well, how much does it cost to put a comic out? And I worked in advertising for, you know, my whole life at that point. And, and I was just started like, I know printers, I know guys who can get this done. And I really wanted it to be on like on newsprint. So I had to like turn a press on, do like out, actual offset lithography because um, you can't you can print digitally onto newsprint but there's a fuser coat that just does away with the tactile aspect of it so it's like <laughs> the point in being encoded if it has a fuser coat so um, yeah I mean I, I had enough I, I, I raised the money I, I you know I put out the first issue and just you know doing this kind of like faux vintage style having like the blacks over print the color like you know employing all of these like um, little limitations of 60s technology you know like having the the plates actually pick you know so they're not solid coats of paint you can see like the picking in there and the, like the lack of even coding and then that being multiplied against the black that's not quite a hundred percent, you know, and then having it be on tactile paper. And then like, you know, you can smell the ink on there cause it's, it's absorption print, not evaporative print. So you like just being able to hold this thing that like, it seems like a, a relic from a time that didn't exist, you know, and, and, and it became like kind of an afterthought. I don't really, I mean, it was intentional, but then I'd realize I'm like, Oh, I'm like, I'm giving the reader an experience more than I'm just telling them a story. Right. Like I can feel and smell it, you know, and like, as opposed to just see and read it. Um, yeah, so I, I just kind of, you know, did the first issue. It was, uh, I was in Diamond for the first one. I got kind of like certified cool by them. But um, I actually, honestly, I came out the same time, like they, they launched the new 52. So I just got crushed behind the sea of, you know, Batman number ones and Superman number ones. And, and uh, I was in there for issue two as well. I was in Diamond and, and they did everything they could to help me. And then I just didn't make the numbers. Then I just got like sidetracked with like having to, uh, you know, like re- refigure out my distribution plan and then other gig. Like then that got me more work. So I had to do like other gigs and I kept kind of coming back to it. And then finally, like last year, I just made it my priority, like to just, I'm doing the book, I'm finishing it, I got my issues out, I got, I got the story arc out there, and, and now I'm collecting it. So I think it's a long way from your, your, your original question. <laughs> no, no, but it was, it was, it was a great answer. Um, so in 2011, you sort of sit down and you, you know, you, you have this sort of conversation with Dark Horse, uh, they pass, but you, you make issue one. Um, and, and you're working on this from 2011. Did you always envision it to, to, to be six issues or is that sort of something that uh, evolved over time? Um, I know that sort of in these last couple of years or two, you've sort of made a press to, to get it finished. Was it always six issues and did you always sort of know the ending or the, the, the way you wanted six to end? 
Uh, yeah, I knew, I knew where I wanted it to be, and I knew it was going to be six issues. And I knew that I wanted the last issue to be double-sized, because I just like that Silver Age kind of doing double-sized issues. Um, and I knew, yeah, so I knew where, where, I knew what the beats were initially. Like, when I pitched it to Dark Horse, uh, I pitched, I essentially pitched them the, dark, the Hellboy model, right? Like, that's kind of what they do. It's like, you know, series, like, in my head, it was going to be several series of limited, you know, limited issues. So we're not beholden to, like, getting an issue 13 or 16 out there in the world. And you know, I don't want to be uh, Eric Larson doing, you know, drawing issue 250. I mean, I'll, I'll draw a 250th issue of Lamano, but it's only going to be like, you know, series 10, issue six or whatever it is. Like, I'm not, I, I don't know, it's just easier. Um, it's easier for my brain to digest if I'm just working toward a sixth issue. So I, I pitched them an arc and like part of my pitch was to give them the arc. So I gave them the whole first issue. I gave them the arc and I broke out the story beats of all six issues. And when I started the story, I knew where it was going to end. Like I, I knew it had to happen. I, I knew, you know, like kind of what the twists were and I knew, um, then I knew kind of the order, like, you know, uh, that like the gen the broad beats of like issue one is about him becoming, you know, like the, his debut is Lamano issue two, you find out who he was before that, you know, issue three is going to be a little bit of like a hiccup in this, like, you know, in his, in his path, um, you know, issue four is a little more clarity. Issue five is like, you know, and, I, and that was fun things. Like I knew issue five, I wanted to make it look like, the final confrontation was going to happen, you know, cause, cause uh, people have kind of, you know, the whole story kind of leads up to this confrontation. And then I knew that there was going to be a swerve at that confrontation that was going to lead into issue six. And then being able to tie up all of the things that I had planted in issues two, three and four. So um, yeah, you know, I, I just, there was a lot of things I didn't want to do, you know, like the kind of cliched like stuff. And I, I wanted to acknowledge the cliche-ness of them, you know, like the fact that he's just kind of like working his way up through like boss levels to get to the main boss. Like I wanted the, the bad guys to acknowledge that. So like the beginning of issue three is like, we know what he's doing. He's just working his way to us. So like, let's cut him off at the pass. And, and I, I just wanted both my, my bad guys and my smart or my, uh, my good guys to be smarter than that and kind of acknowledge these tropes, tropes and, and, and in so doing kind of subvert them in a, in a way. So um, yeah, I mean, I, I had a, a framework, but not like every panel worked out when I pitched the issue. I just kind of knew what I would, would tackle and that's kind of the way I break down everything. Like I, I'd have the broad beats. Like even when I start the issue, I'm like, okay, this is where you know, issue one ended and this is where issue three begins. So I need, I know what I need to cover in issue, um, in issue two. And then I know the story beats that I want to want to do. And I do like a, an outline where I just kind of like, well, here's where it starts. Here's where it ends. I just leave a lot of space on the paper. And I'm like, well, I'd like to see this happen. I'd like to see that happen. And then I'll start drawing little arrows. I'm like, well, that should happen before this. And then maybe lead into that and you know, yada, yada. And here's a good place for this. And, and uh, so I, I ended up with a pretty good, just like written outline. That's like, maybe a page or two of just jumbled notes, you know? Mm -hmm. And then I jump into uh, um, thumbnails, you know, from there. And so since I'm a, a writer and an artist, I, I have my outline and then I do my thumbnails. And I kind of, when I thumbnail, I think I, I set some stuff aside here. Hold on, I can actually show you how I thumbnail. Um, do I? Hold on, there's a good question. Yeah. So when I thumbnail, I have these sheets of paper. I don't know if you can see this. Yeah, I can. So I've got all 22 pages like mapped out with the spreads together, right? So I can see how it's going to read and look. Mm -hmm. And so I, I will do like uh, like little, you know, in the margins there, you can see all these like little notes and stuff that I have. I'm like, you know, this is supposed to happen here. It's supposed to happen there. And then I'll start, you know, thumbnailing what goes in there. And I'll also make like little dialogue notes on the, on the edges there. But it allows me to kind of like at a glance, see the entire book. And I can kind of see where the beats of the book are. You know, it's so like I can, I can just start at page one. I can know how it starts. I know how it ends. I'm like, okay, so like right about here, I need, you know, X to happen. Mm -hmm. I'll put that in there and then I'll start filling in like, well, to get from here to here, I need to do this. And I just kind of like filling in the gaps and then the gaps get smaller. And eventually I'm just doing one page next to the other. And, and I do sometimes have to like arrange pages or, you know, next to each other, but 
it also allows me to look at like the frame arrangements through the entire book. So I'm not like, I don't have like three two page spreads in a row. And then it's like five more pages of like nine panel grids or whatever. I mean, it, that might be germane to the storytelling. Like, I don't know, but it, it does allow me to kind of see the, the pace of the book and like where action is happening and where, you know, kind of talking and exposition is happening or, you know, and it also allows me to see each page in relation to the page it's next to. And then the ones that proceeded and, and, and follow it or the, yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I generally think about it as like a visual medium, just kind of in sense of like how the story's flowing, like just, you know, like the entire book at a glance, like being able to like look back and see how the, the panels are stacking up next to each other, not only from, you know, one page to the next, but like five pages in a row, I can see how those like look together, you know? So yeah. And then I, I just do that a thumbnail and then um, I'm pretty much done with my layouts at that point. Like I know what they're going to look like. And I go from there to, to artboards, you know, and I, I'll generally like rule out my borders based on my thumbnails, you know, like the, for me, the thumbnails are me like setting panel orders and, and sizes and arrangements as well as broad gestures of what the figures are going to look like in there. Mm -hmm. And then I'll jump from the thumbnails to um, my artboard, like, you know, love my 17 Bristol and I'll rule out my thumb, my, uh, those panels, I'll roll them out onto the, the uh, Bristol. And then what I usually do is I'll throw the tracing paper over that and then I'll do my breakdowns on the tracing paper. And that okay. way, because a lot of times when you're doing breakdowns, it's like a panel will get away from you. You know, you like, you'll do most of it. Like, oh, that guy's just a little too low. With a tracing paper, I can just go ahead and finish him, cut that piece of tracing paper and scoot it up a little bit and then tape it to another piece of tracing paper and then do that. And that's like a leftover from my tattoo days. Like I, I, uh, a, a lot of tattoo artists do a lot of work on tracing paper. So uh, yeah, I just, I, I work on tracing. And like, a lot of times my tracing paper breakdowns are one solid sheet of paper. And then sometimes there are as many as like nine sheets of paper kind of oh, wow. together loosely. And then I'll take those, but they all fit in the panels, including the word balloons. And then I'll tape that to the backside of my Bristol board and then do my pencils on the Bristol. Like I'll just light box it and do my pencil. Like I'll just trace the, you know, the, the breakdowns and then take the breakdowns and, and refine them in pencils. Um, yeah. So that, that's kind of how I, I, I end up my storytelling. I don't know. Did I, did I go too far in my, my process for you? No, I, I really enjoyed that. Um, so it sounds like you're, you know, you working as both the, the writer and the artist, you're, you're allowed to have yourself, you're giving yourself a little bit of freedom sort of in that, 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 that planning stage. Um, you know, you, you're saying, you know, this is where it starts. This is where, where it ends. You might figure out your midpoint and then some spots in between. Um, is a lot of discovery of how the story is going to go sort of in that one page thumbnail sort of design. And, and, and then you're like, from there, um, you sort of have the, where's, where's the most sort of discovery? Is it in the thumbnail stage or in that sort of uh, breakdown stage? Uh, it's in the thumbnails. It definitely okay. is. That's where I can see kind of, you know, cause even in my outline, I can't see how it's going to, the flow of it, you know, and to me, kind of the, the flow of, the, of comic books is like kind of one of the most important things there is like, you know, clarity and flow. It's like, you know, what, making sure you understand what happens and how you get someone from this step to the next, like to where you want their eye to go and not making the, the reader have to like work for, you know, story elements. And so, um, yeah, that's, that's generally, I don't stray too far from my thumbnails when I'm doing my breakdowns. It's a rarity that I'll like, you know, it, when I'm doing the thumbnails, I can, I can see like, Oh, that guy needs, his head needs to be on the other side of the panel. You know, he needs mm -hmm. to be looking in and not out or, or what have you. So, you know, it's all kind of there in the thumbnails and, and they're my blueprint. And I just kind of like, you know, then I build the house when I'm doing the actual pencil pages. And I also, you know, like you said, I, like I'm working Marvel style with myself, you know, like I kind of know what the broad beats are. And then while I actually have to create all the in between, between spaces, like, you know, what I drew before will inform what I draw next. And I'll kind of see like, oh, it'd be kind of fun if I, 
you know, did this, that, or the other thing, you know, there's, there's some opportunity there for me to surprise myself. It's a rare occasion that I'll start penciling the page after I've done the thumbnails and even the breakdowns where I'm like, Oh no, that needs to, that should really be different. You know? Um, and you know, it, it has happened. I mean, issue six recently, I had um, three horizontal panels uh, that told this series of events. And I just, for whatever reason, something dawned on me. Like, I, I think it was a, um, it was a matter of time timing. And I, I find that like horizontal panels read as longer moments. I'm sorry, vertical panels read as longer moments than horizontal panels because we're kind of always moving horizontally. Mm-hmm. But if you make someone kind of look up and down, like pod, like you know, you think about how you go to like an art gallery, right? Like you're just kind of like moving along, and if you see a long painting, it 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 halts you, and you have to take it in from top to bottom. The same with a panel, and I realized I needed these these panels to kind of be bigger moments than than what I had originally put them out to, and that's kind of the last time I've done that, but, but more often than not, it's usually just a, a directional thing. Like, oh, that'd be better if we were facing the other direction. And I can just, at that point, I can just flip the tracing paper the other way and then light box it, which is nice. Um, you know, sometimes it's just a mirror image like that. But yeah, it, it's, uh, the, the thumbnails are, are, are where the work is done. You know, that's where I'm figuring it out. And then the, um, you know, that's, that's the, uh, the craft, I want to say. I don't know, I guess that's a skill. Yeah, that's the skill, right, is, is the, the thumbnails the craft uh, is and the talent is the is the penciling you know at that point i'm just kind of like you know doing you know now i've gone from being the architect to being the builder like i'm just going to do what the architect told me you know nice Um, so i i just have one more question about this sort of aspect of the creation um one of the aspects of of comic book storytelling is sort of either you know that last panel or or the page turn and as you're sort of in that stage where you're designing on occasion, I guess you said you're doing arrows and you're moving things around. Does mm-hmm. that ever, do you, do you, like on the first pass, did you ever like have like an awesome like page reveal and then you realize that like moving something here sort of shifts it and it's now sort of not that, uh, but it, usually like the, uh, it's the, the even number pages where we, we turn and we, we, we sort of have that moment where we can sort of pace the story. Um. No, honestly, doing the thumbnails the way that I do, being able to see all 22 of them at a time kind of prevents that. So I want to say, I don't think I've ever had like it it'd be disappointing where I'm like, oh, I needed that to be, you know, on the right, but it just can't because of the way things have worked out. But um, I have for sure surprised myself where things kind of like lined up in a way where I'm like, oh, that's, that's kind of funny that it ends up there. Like it's something I unintended happened in a good way, but I've very rare, God, I mean, I, I can't think of any examples offhand because like that's the thing I'm looking out for when I'm doing the thumbnails is that everything kind of pays off right so that's kind of you know the the storytelling is the most important thing that I'm doing when I'm thumbnailing the the you know rendering and the look of it are kind of when I'm penciling so um yeah yeah and and uh there's you know there's plenty of opportunity and I, I have you know like completely tossed like entire like halves of pages like sometimes it just didn't sometimes it doesn't work out, right? Like I'll have the thumbnail and it looks cool in the thumbnail and then it'll look cool in the breakdowns. And then for whatever reason, just because of like, when I start putting in details, like the, the mask designs or the, the costume designs, or even like the, you know, I'll have like kind of, you know, hastily put a background in there. And then I realize once I actually start penciling it, I'm like, well, that's not going to read well because there isn't quite enough space between, you know, when I drew just a line, it was fine. But now that I got to put every arch of the church behind them, it doesn't read as well. So um, every so often that'll happen, but, um, but kind of, you know, like not, not, you know, I've been doing this a long time now, so mm-hmm. I kind of don't really, you know, I, I know kind of what to look out for, but the thumbnail really allows me to, to see when those things are, are, uh, you know, uh, unintentional. Cause like, you know, sometimes 
you'll inadvertently like build a rhythm into things that you didn't mean to. You know, like, oh, this guy's head is kind of the same size in every panel. You know, I should get some variety on the shot. Like my angle, you know, the, the shot composition should have some variety. Or maybe it should be the same. Like I you never, you know, there's always a reason to not do and do something. You know, people will tell you not to do this or that. But um, you know, you, you can see the the kind of banality of like just having like, you know, the head being the same size, or it's like oh, it's like over shoulder, over shoulder, over shoulder. Like maybe we should move the camera around or something um, mm -hmm. to, to get some interest. So um, yeah, you know, it's it's just kind of whatever's in service of the story and and seeing and and it's all there in the thumbnails. Like that that never. Uh, it's never led me astray in a way that like was completely wrong, but it, it, it's usually just in like minor detail kind of stuff. So, um, and then, and then every so often just a dumb accident will happen where I realize when, Oh, when the page turn happens, these things actually line up. So, uh, or maybe I'll notice that they're close to lining up and I can kind of like, you know, nudge something or, you know, that kind of works out. But, um, yeah, it, it's only, only ever worked out for the better for me. Like accidentally I've, I've never unintentionally, screwed something up that's not to say i haven't made mistakes because there's plenty of typos in my book so you know um so from there if i if i understand correctly uh at this point do you do you scan stuff and you start inking it digitally is is, is that how the process works yeah now this gets into my lunatic process so yeah i uh <laughs> i scan in the pencils and i bring them into illustrator and i ink everything as vector art and illustrator i ink i ink color and letter in illustrator so I use applied brush strokes and the pen tool and my mouse. Like I don't have a tablet. I don't have a Wacom. Like I use my mouse and the pen tool and, and uh, you know, Bezian curves. And, uh, and I basically just kind of like, you know, if I have a, a, a brush stroke, I point, you know, click on one end, I click on the other end and I, I drag my curve to how it needs to be. Then I select the brush stroke that it needs to be. So if it's going to go thick to thin or just kind of like have a little warble to it, or, or maybe it's like thin to thick to back to thin, just depending on the kind of like, you know, I've got a, a, a just a library of custom brushes that I made that I, that I know how they work. And so I'll, I'll, um, yeah, I'll apply that. I'll adjust the point size. And so it's, it's pretty tedious, but the, the benefit of that is I get to keep all of my blacks as black. Like they're not, there's no white applied to it. It's just all just black layer, you know? Mm -hmm. And then I have all of my colors as a colored layer. And then all of my lettering sits above that. And uh, so once I have everything kind of looking the way that I do both inked and colored and, and lettered, uh, I pull everything into Photoshop and that's where that kind of like faux aging comes in and I have a bunch of scanned in like distress plates that are like, um, we had a really, at McFarland we had this really great old black and white copier that was like from the eighties, I think. And if you just like, I just printed out like a bunch of small, almost black squares, like 99% blacks or something like, or 98s, you know? So there was like a little bit of, of like warble, ink warble to them and stuff. Like it was, it was inconsistent. And I, I printed out small and I just blew them up on this crappy black and white copier, like, I don't know, a couple hundred times. And so I've got these really great, like, like picking and kind of like, you know, these, these holidays, that, like, you know, tattooing call them holidays when they're like, not quite black a hundred percent. I've got a bunch of those scanned in and I'll just apply one of those to the black layer. And so everything that's ink now has like this, this uneven ink. And then I do the same thing where I screen it out of the color layer. And then I have scanned in distressed pieces of paper, like old comic book paper that I've scanned in a, a bunch of those. And I just have the ink multiply the paper and then the black multiply the inks and it gives it that kind of like, uh, I basically digitally print it poorly, you know, <laughs> which is what, you know, they used to do uh, in, you know, in the sixties for comic books. So yeah, like a little bit of uh, like wobble to the plates and stuff and everything, you know? So rather than trying to use some kind of like hand filter, I'm doing everything kind of organically and custom so that it, that it has a lot more kind of like natural, like this is how it got screwed up in the process. You know, it takes a lot of work to make a comic look bad, which is kind of <laughs> funny. And originally my printer thought it was a mistake. Like he, he was like, 
the first time we did issue one, he had like circled all these areas. He's like, dude, we're, we're trying to fix this. I don't know. I'm like, no, no, no. That's totally what it needs to look like. He was like beside himself because now printers are so down with perfection and they want everything to be super crisp. And like, mm-hmm. I have like one of my layers is like a slight multiply that has a slight blur on it. So you get a little bit of like, like dot gain. There's like a tiny bit of, of like ink, you know, uh, bleeding out in the paper kind of effect to it. And he was just trying to fix all of that. He's like, I don't know, man. And I'm like, no, no, no. This is like, it needs to look terrible. Like this is perfect. Like it, look, it looks like it was in someone's back pocket for, you know, 10 years or whatever. So yeah, I, I uh, but yeah, that, that process of, of, of point and click and mouse, uh, I'm pretty good at it. I can still ink a page a day, you know, like I can, I can sometimes ink two or three pages in a day, depending on the complexity. And I can, you know, I can, I can get an entire page done in a day, penciled, inked, colored, lettered, ready to go. If I, if I really like, if I don't have anything else to do that day. So, you know, and I, and I think guys who, do it traditionally or who are doing it on, on, you know, uh, Cintiqs these days or, or iPads or whatever. And most people are about a page a day is a good rate. So, you know, uh, it's not, not good on my wrist, but it definitely, you know, but it gives me the effect that I want. I think, uh, since then I've done a couple other projects. Like I did a, a book for top cow last year and, uh, I did, a uh, how was it? I did a nine page story for, uh, Michael Kingston's headlock this year. And both of those, I actually, for the most part, I inked them by hand just because I could work a little quicker and the deadlines were kind of creeping up on me on those. And so inking stuff by hand, I can get like maybe two pages done in a day, like completely like, you know, colored ink, you know, art, but I do the same thing. I just take the inked in and I apply the ink layer as like a channel to the, um, to the uh, distress plate layer and then have it multiply. And then a lot of times when I do stuff by hand, like I won't, uh, there's no reason for me to draw a circle anymore. You know what I mean? Like the computer will do it much better than me you know, using a template and then scanning it, like there's all room for error there. If I need a perfect circle, like they'll do on the computer. A lot of times like buildings I'll do on the computer just cause it's easier to set my perspectives and stuff. But I'm not using um, any of those like uh, SketchUp kind of like things. Like I, I still will draw everything, you know, cause it's easier to get it to work right for me anyway, to have the pencils or the figures in there, draw my perspective lines in from there and then just, just start using, using those to start, you know, uh, putting And that also looks a little less mechanical if I kind of do it that way. So uh, it, it's really backwards and I'm sure there's easier ways to, to get similar results, but uh, this is my method for now. <laughs> Very cool. So um, you had mentioned about like doing one page a day um, and you, I guess sort of at this stage when you've, you've gone from the, the, the paper, the tracing paper to, to the computer, are you sort of, uh, do you concentrate on doing, inks colors letters on that page or you just do you sort of like get in a mindset where you're like an inking mindset and you just sort of like ink pages yeah. for a while or or does that just sort of as the mood takes you um no i'm a, i'm i'm dumb so i <laughs> here let me see i might have one of these too uh oh here you go so i don't know if you can see this my little cards like these are projects and they've got little x's on them okay and each column is a p-i-c-l you know so it's pencil ink color letter uh i not only do I start at page one and end at page 22, I start in the upper left of page one <laughs> and work my way to the lower right of page 22. And I pencil every page. Then I go back and I ink every page. Then I go back and I color every page. And then I go back and I let So like I'm, uh, ironically enough, like I put my shoes on sock, shoe, sock, shoe, you know, cause I kind of like the completeness of like, I, you know, did one foot, then the other foot gets done. Mm-hmm. You know? But for, you know, in my art life, I'm very like all the thumbnailing has to happen. Like I would never thumbnail half the issue and then start penciling anything. Like I have to thumbnail the entire issue. Then I go to page one and I, you know, I start penciling page one and I, I work my way all the, you know, page one, two, three, all the way to 22. 
then I go back and I ink, then I go back and I color. Yeah. So for whatever reason, uh, I just need to do each step kind of on its own. Um, even when I'm doing it, like traditionally, like if I'm you know, inking stuff by hand, I still, I, I make sure everything's penciled. Then I go back and I, I ink everything and then I go back. Yeah. I don't know what, what that says about me or my personality or, 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 uh, you know, you know, I'm not the kind of guy who, uh, when I eat a meal, I don't eat like all of the steak and then all of the potatoes and all of that, you know, like I have some of everything. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, for whatever reason, art, my art is very regimented in that way. And I know guys who will like jump in to like do the fun stuff first and then do the stuff they don't want to, or they'll do the stuff they don't want to. So they know they have the fun stuff as a reward. I just, the idea of like starting on page 10 in a book, cause it's like a big splash thing or something like, nah, man, that just like, it, it just, it, it assaults my artistic sense. <laughs> like when I think about that, like I, I just couldn't do it. I mean, unless, you know, I've had a few occasions where I'm doing work for publishers and they're like, uh, they need to solicit or they'll need examples or something. And they're like, Hey, I know you're on page four. Can you jump to page like 12 and do that one? So I have it as an impact image for the solicitor or whatever. Mm-hmm. And that has happened. And it's very, uh, it's trying. <laughs> like it bothers me. Uh, yeah. I don't want to, I'm like, I'm really not that kind of OCD guy, except in this one tiny area. Yeah. So um, with your, with your process, the lettering is, is the last um, section of that. Um, do you find that once you're in there and you're doing the lettering that you um, always stick to what you want the characters to say, or now that you see them sort of fully realized, um, do they ever sort of, you know, slightly change what they might say or, or um, just phrase something differently? Oh, it all, yeah, the, the lettering is the, the most fluid part of it. Cause I have, okay. I make notes on what I kind of want them to say. And then I'll, uh, even on like the, my outline, I'll, I'll like, I'll outline, like I'll put, you know, things I want them to say, but once they're drawn and in there, mostly I'm trying to figure out what do I have to say? Like, what have I not shown? Right. Cause I'm very like show don't tell mm-hmm. the visual medium, right. The, 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 um, the language should be there to kind of like complement and support and not necessarily like, it should never be the thing. Right. Like, I don't think you should be able to like take the pictures out of a comic book and be able to read it just based on the word balloons. But I definitely think you should be able to take the word balloons off a comic book and be able to read it without the word balloons. And so, um, but you know, that, that's just me. Uh, otherwise write a book, you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. Get spot illustrations on a book, like, you know, whatever. Um, and then even the way they like fit in the, in the word balloon, sometimes they'll just be like, Oh man, if I could just get this a sentence or two shorter, it would fit better or maybe I need a better word for this. Cause the, 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 you know, the ragging on the, on the, uh, the type doesn't look great. Like if I could just get a bigger word for this or a smaller word for that, I could get it, you know, I could trim it in there. So I, I'm constantly, you know, uh, my dialogue is like, you know, they're the darlings I'm totally fine killing, you know, I'll have a great line, but I just don't have the room to put it in a, in a word balloon. And I've written entire pages and then looked at them when I've done coloring them and go like, man, that reads totally silent. Like there's no reason for me, so, you know, like a big example of that was uh, issue four when he's working his way through the other minor championship belts to get to where he can take on the, the, the main bad guy. Um, I had dialogue. So there's no reason for me to do anything by putting, you know, my words are only going to screw this up. So I just, you know. I killed those. I do it all the time where I have like some great line, but also, you know, because this book is set in the sixties, um, you know, it has that very silver age bombast to the dialogue. It's very operatic over the top dialogue that nobody talks like. So in my head, it's always like a, what would Stan say? You know, it's like mm-hmm. those kind of like lines. 
so it's fun to you know have like you know the the purveyor of purloin promises like you know written in these things that people don't say so kind of trying to figure that out sometimes I'll, I'll read something and it'll be a little too casual you know it's like oh this is just a little too direct or a little too modern and it's like i need to make this sound like a 40 year old man in 1960 was trying to write it to appeal to 12 year olds <laughs> which is a hard calculus but uh, but fun to do Awesome. So I, I really enjoyed uh, talking talking the process here, but I want to turn our attention back to the story. Okay. Um, I know that a lot of it's it's probably pretty uh, easy to say that there's a lot of crossover between comic book fans and wrestling fans. Uh, but do you find the fact that uh, luchadors wearing masks, superheroes wearing masks, um, that storytelling? Did you did you find that? that was something that was, was easy to blend together? Um, I mean, yeah, it's all kind of, you know, it's tales of heroics, right? Like it, it is, you know, um, and I don't want to get into like kind of Campbellian, you know, hero's journey stuff, but I mean, it, it does kind of follow those lines to a certain degree. But um, yeah, it's, it's who we choose to celebrate, who we want to be our champions. I mean, to me, there, there's a better idea. The idea of who champions you is, is an important notion. And I think that, uh, Culturally, I think that American heroics have had a need to make superheroes who are more like us, okay. as opposed to being as opposed to us wanting to be more like our heroes. And I think that Lucha Libre, especially in the '60s, did a really good job of having these aspirational champions that you would want to be more like, as opposed to needing them to be more like you. And I also think that I've talked about this a little bit of length, and especially in the back matter, is like, you know. Uh, Mexicans and you know Latinx peoples in general, but specifically Mexicans, have a pretty complicated relationship with identity, right? Like because you know we're most of us, like I think like eighty percent of Mexicans are mestizos, so like we're we're mixed, right? Like we're 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 as much Spanish as we are, you know, Aztec, and you know we we have the last names of the uh, conquistadors, but the skin color of the conquered, and so who you are, this kind of like ego-based interaction with the world is is uh is complicated you know uh and, and less important and so our heroes become what they do right so a guy like zorro is masked and and is is hiding his nobility to to be kind of you know to be this better you know this to be a better effect in the world as opposed to a better person in the world mm -hmm. and the luchadors are, are people who have sacrificed their other ego just to be the mask right like el santo is is, is the hero like uh, Rodolfo Huerta Guzman is is uh, is just a guy, you know. What I mean, like no, no, that guy doesn't do anything. So, so um, you know, it, it is it is uh, defining yourself by what you do and not who you are. You know, American wrestling is very ego driven, right? I mean, so much so that there's like the, the smart marks here, the smarts, right? Guys who know the ins and outs of like these these wrestlers' lives and their struggles, and everyone knows like the Hardy brothers, like kind of you know, or the Hardy boys. And they're like getting kicked out of the WWE and then having the, to kind of write their own ticket at, at Impact and then coming back, you know. And, and that's part of the narrative, but it is kind of a, a, an ego-driven, like what's happened to them personally, kind of like who they're about. Whereas, you know, in Lucha Libre, you know, I guess there are, you know, you know modern, in, in modern times, there's a little more kind of like insight into who they are as people. But you don't get a sense that they're, 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 there's no Clark Kent to their Superman, right? Like they're just that person all the time. Mm -hmm. And that kayfabe extends out into the world and, and as a, an invitation to uh, engage and participate in performance art that goes beyond the, the boundaries of the ring, right? Like, you know, like uh, when El Santo showed up in movies, he wasn't maskless and, and, you know, and trying to play another character. He was in his silver mask being El Santo in that movie. 
so much so that he would stop and have wrestling, you know, take wrestling breaks. Like, oh, shit, I gotta, I gotta do a match now. Like, yes, the vampire women are very bad, but I, I got a nine o'clock, man. I gotta defend my title. Sorry, you know. So, um, I think that kind of extension of kayfabe both acknowledges this kind of like magical realism of of of, uh, of kayfabe extending in the real world, but it also acknowledges that identity itself is a construct, and it's all just what we agree on, right? Like, mm-hmm. it's just like okay, like. Identity is BS, you know what I mean? So much so that we can have a dude in a mask and a suit walking through the supermarket and no one's going to say anything. And I, I think that kind of like, in its absurdity, in, in, in embracing the fiction, it sheds a light on the absurdity of reality, you know, in, in quotation marks reality. So I think that that's an aspect of, of superhero comics that, that hasn't been explored fully and kind of can't in American comics because of the kind of like, ego nature in which Americans kind of deal with their heroes because they want to they want to identify with like I want to know this guy's just as messed up as I am or has just as many problems like there's a there's a weird relish that you know that we, we relish those sorts of things but I mean it, you know it, it comes down to things like you just I mean it's a cultural thing like we can't you, you can't teach or doesn't export because you know even the way that we speak you know me- uh, Spanish is the verb first like what's being done is more important than who does it that comes later American English is subject predicate. Who does it precedes what is being done. Okay. And that, I mean, it's just the way that we're uh, acculturated. Like we can't, you know, it's, it's hard to transcend. And so I think kind of having those notions kind of uh, inform the way that identity is, is, uh, is approached and executed in this particular world, you know, kind of both highlights the kind of, you know, beauty of Lucha Libre, but it also kind of contrasts with, the uh the nature of, of uh the construction of heroism in, in american culture i guess is like my really high-minded way to, to say that no no that was uh, that was very i i enjoyed that and that was uh we got deep there for for a moment yeah but um, i gotta say honestly it is dudes and mass beating on each other like don't don't think that i like at no point do you have a claremont-esque uh <laughs> dissertation being spouted at you like i'm not grant morrison like i'm not going to explain you know, uh, uh, what is his uh, magic geometry thing that he loves so much? The spiral dynamics. Like, yeah, okay. there'll, there'll, there'll be no explanation of spiral dynamics in Lucha Libre. Like, my comic is just dudes in mask beating on each other. This is kind of the underpinnings of that and what my, my kind of ethos approach as I was creating it. But I, that's, that's, the, that's the foundations, man. Like, you know, the comic itself, that's the house on top. That's, that's the, the fun thing you get to live in. Cool. So, uh, you know, we, we touched a little bit about, um, you know, superheroes in, in comics and, and wrestling, um, you know, and something that they're both going to have in common is, is action. Mm-hmm. Um, so were you, when you were getting into the, the parts of the story where, where, you know, where we're in the ring and we're, we're wrestling, were you, um, were you watching anything to sort of uh, get moves? Because, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a style of fighting, you know, it's, it's sort of like, grappling graceful you know jumping it's you know if you think of like uh some of like the the modern sort of like daredevil netflix fights where the guys like punch each other and they sort of take a moment to sort of gather their you know their their yeah. their, their 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 breath after being hit there's there's not a lot of that you know in in, in this sort of wrestling so were, were you watching matches to sort of get the feel of that so oh, I'm always watching matches, man. Yeah, yeah. So I listen to a couple of wrestling podcasts. I, I don't have, uh, I haven't had like broadcast TV or like a cable um, in, in, I mean, since the digital transition happened. Like I, all I had was a black and white antenna TV when the digital transition happened and it was this tiny thing and I wasn't about to pay 50 bucks to, to watch the news and weather, you know? So 
uh, I just gave up on TV, but um, recently I've gotten more uh, online services so I could watch some things. But what I would do was listen to wrestling podcasts, hear what kind of sounded cool, and then check them out, the highlights online. Um, so in as much as I would watch, you know, the occasional WWE match, I would watch a lot of like New Japan, which, you know, Japanese wrestling is great. A lot of like, you know, Lucha Underground highlights uh, and, and other like, you know, CMLL and um, AAA, which are the two big leagues in Mexico for Lucha Libre. Okay. And you know, like every so often, like, you know, being in the Lucha Libre world, like we, you know, it's a real small world and we all kind of like know each other. And so, you know, people would be like, oh yeah, well, have you seen Phoenix when he was fighting in Mexico? So I'd go, like, I'd see a guy in like a Lucha Underground and be like, where did that guy come from? And I would go back and watch his old matches. I also watched a lot of vintage matches because I wanted the fights to be a little more vintage, like kind of the move set that they did. I, d I didn't want a lot of kind of, you know, um, you know, gimmicky stuff that's kind of new or, or, or stuff that, you know, there is a little anachronistic wrestling. Like it's not all period perfect 1965 wrestling, but I tried to keep it that way. And then to your point too about the, the agility, like that's another difference between American wrestling and like Luta Libre. Again, the difference of like being about what you can do as opposed to who you are you know, American wrestling a lot of times is like imposition of will, right? It's like, you know, it's about like slamming a guy, holding him and slamming him. And, you know, Hulk Hogan's big finisher was a leg drop. You know what I mean? It's just him coming down on somebody. Whereas Lucha Libre, like, you know, Mexicans are, we're not built that way. So like, you know, we're not huge dudes who can throw each other. It's, it was a lot of like leverage. It's a lot of agility. It's a lot of like, you know, using someone's momentum against them. It's a lot of, uh, uh, it's a lot more about what you do and less about who you are, I guess, you know, to simplify it. Uh, again, having that kind of like ethos of, of, of how we approach it. And so I wanted to make sure there was more of that in the comic than there was, um, than there was just straight up like, you know, choke slams or, or leg drops, mm -hmm. you know, like I, I, I definitely wanted more hurricanranas and, and blanchas than I wanted, uh, than I wanted choke slams for sure. So it was a consideration. And, and, and I also like, I choreographed each of the matches, you know, like either with action figures or just kind of in my head. Like I, I never, you know, wrestling is such a particular fandom that I knew I was inviting a critical eye like no other. You know what I mean? It's like, I think the only people worse than wrestling fans about wrestling being portrayed in other media are military people watching military on screen and in TV. You know what I mean? Like every military guy you know is like, you don't salute like that. He wouldn't have his, his cover on indoors. Like, well, you know, a guy like, I didn't want that, but to wrestling, you're like, oh, he would never hold a guy like that. Or that's not how you like, wait a minute. He was just on the other side. How would he be over here? Like, so I, I really just being a, a, a kind of a mark myself, like I really wanted wrestling that I enjoyed, you know, and, and, and was dynamic and was kind of true to how like, you know, and, and granted like some of the hits are, are, you know, a little more brutal than you would get in, in a wrestling match. But I, I definitely wanted it to, um, to be as, you know, in quotation marks, real as possible or as authentic, mm -hmm. I guess. You know, authenticity was probably the biggest watchword for me across everything. Like I wanted the Latino culture to be authentic. I wanted the Lucha Libre to be authentic. I wanted the ethos of the Lucha Libre to be authentic. So um, I wanted to be unassailable in my authenticity. You know, like, you know, somebody came, you know, I got a lot of people trying to correct my Spanish on it. Like, oh, shouldn't it be El Mano? Cause it's like masculine. I'm like, that's oh, La Mano. Like I have a, a, a Lutaria card, which has a La, La Mano on there. And I just would just show them that like, <laughs> I'd send them a picture like, no, it's La Mano. It's always La Mano. Like if you walk into a bathroom, it's like you know, la, la, Los Manos. Like it, it, it's always La Manos. Like I don't, I don't know why. Uh, it's a weird, you know, break with tradition. But um, I knew I was inviting a lot of criticism. So I wanted to get it as right as possible. So yeah, definitely research the heck out of it. Very cool. So this has been something that you've been working on um, for, for a while. And, you oh, yeah. know, you've, you've, you've brought it, uh, you know, to, to uh, uh, a close here with these six issues that you're kickstarting. 
Um, is is there some world that you want to return to in the future, or do you do you want to sort of cap it and, and tell other stories? Um, well, okay. uh, no, I definitely I have three other arcs I need, I want to do. Okay. Um, well, I have. I should say this. I know what the next arc is going to be, and I know what the last arc is going to be. Uh, it, I might just do those three arcs. There might be another one or two in between them. So I know how I want to end it. I know what the next. Definitely know what the next one is. So I'm gonna I'm gonna come back to him for sure, in this world for sure. Uh, in, in the meantime, while I'm doing this Kickstarter and kind of like, so the next thing I do, I'm gonna try to not solicit or let people know it's out in the world until I've got at least half of it done, if not all of it. Like I kind of wanna get to the point where I'm just like, look, it's done, here's issue one, two months from now, issue two, you know, it's kind of like, especially with the fan base I'm getting with the Kickstarter thus far and the fan base that I've kind of cultivated just kind of over the years of, of hand selling this at conventions. So uh, at least two more arcs, or two six issue arcs are gonna happen. Um, in the interim though, uh, you know, the way that I set up the luchadors in this world, they're famous, right? Like they have a, a certain amount of fame. And so he's going to do things like make a movie there and he's going to okay. be, he's going to have like a, um, he's going to have a newspaper comic strip about him, but those are going to be like, you know, the equivalent of like what the Spider-Man comic strip was in the newspaper compared to like the, the Spider-Man in the comics, you know, they're going to be like someone else's idea of what his adventures are. And so I want to kind of, I want to build up a lot of this kind of metafiction, like, oh, this is the movie he starred in and, and kind of produce a thing that, that shows like, it's like the, either the comic book adaptation of the movie that he was in that never happened, you know, like I want to do some of those as kind of like one off. So I'm going to do a couple of movies that he starred in. I have those planned out and started drawing on them as well as a plan to possibly do a record with those, like a power record on those. Wow. I, I also have, um, if this Kickstarter funds enough, it might be a stretch goal or it might be its own Kickstarter. It just depends on, on what happens next, but I'm definitely going to do a record power. Or at least one of them is going to be a power record version, storybook and record, you know, voice acted of the comic book, you know, full 12 inch by 12 inch comic book uh, of, of the movies that he starred in. Also uh, on Instagram, uh, hold on, let me get the actual address on this. So on Instagram, I'm going to, I'm, I've started, I only have one up now and, and uh, I'm going to start doing now that the Kickstarter is happening. I'm going to, uh, I'm going to start doing more of these. I've got the newspaper strip and it's just Destino underscore newspaper underscore strip is his, uh, is his, uh, is the Instagram handle. And there I'm going to start doing his newspaper strip, but there it's going to be this kind of weird approximation to him. Again, it's like the Spider-Man strip versus the Spider-Man. Actually, he's got like two pet Jaguars in, 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 he lives in a penthouse and he like has two pet Jaguars and he like fights crime and like works for the government. And the first story arc is going to be him against a jewel thief and stuff. And so what I wanted to do is I want to create this kind of fiction within this fictional world. Like, cause this is ostensibly like you're reading the newspaper that exists in his world mm -hmm. and that's the comic strip from it. And so eventually when I do that second arc of things, I want him to have to react to this metafiction that like this idea that people have of him. Cause now that he's a famous, that he's a known quantity, I want him to like run into people who think like, you know, he has like, Oh, how's Bruno and Francesca is like his pet Jaguars. He's like, I, they're just in the comic strip. Like that's not my real life. And, you know, like, oh, I saw you fight those, you know, that giant monster. He's like, that, that was the movie. Like, it's not me, you know? So, like, just him having to reconcile who the media portrays him as versus who he knows himself to be kind of like, you know, the first, the first arc is him kind of figuring out who he's going to be. And now the second arc is going to be him kind of, like, having to keep that together in the face of, like, a media that wants to start foisting things on who they think he should be, like, who they want him to be. Again, it's that idea of, like, who you want your heroes to be. So, um but I have to kind of in the interim, like while I'm making the comic, I'm going to start putting these little bits of meta fiction out there so that he has something to react to, like in the actual comic book. And then uh, beyond that, so then that'll be six issues. I'll trade paperback that probably in a year or two. 
and then I have that last arc in mind. So depending on how kind of the metafiction stuff and the second arc do, uh, I might just wrap it up with that third. I'm you know at this point, you know, it might be like you know three years from now. Like I, I might just want to wrap it up and be like, okay, this will be the last one. You know, I'll be 50 at that point. I should probably you know, like maybe move on to my next project. But hey, man, if it's doing well and it, it and, and people are enjoying it, then and I don't. I don't mind doing it until, you know, like I just, hopefully I'll get like a countdown to the end of my life and I can just be like, all right, this is the last story. Like, cause I know, I definitely know how I want it to end. So um, yeah, that was, that was uh, that's something I started, I had in mind even when I started this first issue is like, well, you know, because it happens in the sixties, you know, he would be like a, you know, 90 year old dude now. It's like, you know, he, he doesn't get, he's not around, you know what I mean? Like, it, so I have to, I do have to kind of figure that like my old man Logan story, you know, version oh, wow. of Lamato, you know, like who, who he is and is a you know, old man. So, uh, yeah, and again, it's like kind of, you know, as I age, I start kind of start thinking about like, you know, who, who, you know, what is your legacy, right? Like, what do you leave behind? And so at mm -hmm. some point, he's going to have to start contemplating that. So, but now we're kind of in the beginning part of his life where he's, he's figuring out like, he's building that legacy. And then, you know, he'll try to shape it toward the end, I suppose. But yeah, definitely doing more of him. And, and those are my kind of big plans. But you know, who knows, man, like I, you know, uh, Marvel could call me tomorrow and ask me to want to do, you know, on Spider-Man for five years, like, ah, I'll probably do Spider-Man for five years. So. I don't know. That's a lie. I, I mean, I, there was a point in my life where if, if the big companies had offered me work, I would have jumped on it just to, to have this steady gig. But like, this is kind of working out pretty well for me. So I don't, I don't really know. Uh, I don't really know what they have to offer me these days. You know what I mean? Like other than a, pay, a steady paycheck, like what, what is it really you're going to give me? So mm -hmm. uh, I'm, I'm perfectly content kind of doing my own thing these days. Awesome. So uh, sometimes when I have folks on that are in the midst of, of running a Kickstarter, I ask them the question, how do you sort of maintain your, your sanity uh, during a <laughs> Kickstarter? Are you, are you hitting the refresh button every 30 seconds? Uh, I'm trying really hard not to. Um, it was hard in the beginning. I, like, I think we were you know, chatting about kind of before. I, uh, I just kind of got hit with all these things that I hadn't considered. So I was having to deal with them. And so from the first day of the Kickstarter until about this afternoon, there was a lot of like just me having to get into like answer questions and like, you know, post some things and, and, and get some questions answered. And, and uh, that was a little more than I had. It was some unanticipated, like things you just don't know until you run a Kickstarter. Mm -hmm. And so it was kind of forcing me to have to get in there all the time. I was trying hard not to look at the total, but also Kickstarter emails you like twice a day. Yeah. They're like, Hey, you're doing great. Hey, you know, and, and I, that I fully did. I thought I had control of that, but no. So I, you know, but I'm also waiting for like, you know, press people to email me back. And so I'm like, I keep having to check my, e my email is more the thing I keep checking than the actual total on okay. it. Um, but unfortunately the email is the thing that keeps pulling me back into my Kickstarter and having a look with it. So, uh, you know, I, I'm running a 60 day. So I know it's a, uh, sorry, let me start. I know it's a, a, a niche audience, right? Like Spanish, because I'm doing a Spanish language and English language flip book, right? So you get both all 172 story pages in English you get all 172 pages in Spanish, right? And they're, they're both have covers, right? Cause it's a flip book. You just flip it over for the other half of it. And um, I know that that's a niche project, right? That's not for everybody, but I know that there's enough people who would like that, that it would support the Kickstarter. But I don't know that that those people necessarily always engage in Kickstarter, nor do I know that they engage in kind of like comic media uh, press coverage anyway. Okay. So I know I have to go meet them. I have to go find them, right? Um, and, and so, uh, and so I gave myself the maximum amount of days to do that. And I also like, I'm only selling like the book right now. Like I don't have a lot of like, you know, flim flam. I'm not selling shirts and patches and stickers and, you know, like, cause I, A, I don't want to deal with it, but B, I just want to get the book to people. So mm -hmm. I did the math on this. I did all my calculations. 
that's why the number is so specific for my total. Like it literally just covers my costs. Like I just, like, I don't, I don't need to make money on this. I just want to stop going broke maybe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, I, 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 uh, most of my time is kind of trying to find and inform the audience and, and, uh, and I'm sure that, uh, it's going to be a long road. And I know that it just, you know, every day it's just me trying to kind of get out to like more and more people I think would be interested in it. Cause what I found it shows in, in just in my dealings is like, it, it has a certain kind of like, um, secret handshake, right? Like you, you know, I'm, I'm flying the flag and Stan who salutes and, and it's like people, people who it's for just see it and go, Oh, that, you know what I mean? And, and it's like, there's no sell there. Like I don't need to like once, once they, once I've caught someone's attention enough, once, you know, once it resonates with them to catch their attention for them to like see, Hey, what is this? They want it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And, and the people who, who just don't see it, I could never sell them a book. And so I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to get it in everyone's hands. I'm just trying to get it in the hands of the people who would appreciate it. And, and my, you know, because I have to turn a press on and because it's 400 pages, you know, my break even point is like 800 units, you know? And so I, you know, I'm just, just trying to get, get to where 800 people get involved, you know? And I, I, I don't think that that's a crazy number. I've sold more than 6,500 copies of issue one over the years. I, you know, I, I, you know, issue five was the last book I got to tour with and I sold like, and I sold like 3000 of those. So like, I know there's at least 3000 people out there who want to check it out. You know, people who've been on board for five issues. Um, yeah. You're like, I, I just need 800 of them. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I, I'm not trying to be greedy and I'm not trying to like, you know, uh, razzle dazzle people with like all of the bells and whistles. Like I, I really think the work speaks for itself. So I think the work resonates with this, with a very specific demographic and I'm willing to do the work to find them individually. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm trying to, I'm trying to do that, you know, so I, I'm not, uh, you know, I got no one to blame for myself if it doesn't fun. And, uh, and I'm trying to make that happen. And I, and I can't, you know, and it might not, you know, I'm like, I, that's something I had to make peace with is just, you know, uh, there were probably ways where I could have got someone else to pay for it or had, you know, but I've been doing this on my own for so long and, and I want it to be the specific, you know, to me, it, it always needed to be in Spanish because, because it's Uta Libre mm-hmm. and uh, the conventional comic book wisdom is uh, that, you know, Spanish language comics don't sell. And my answer to that is like, I think comic I think Spanish language comic books just don't sell to the direct market. I don't think they don't sell. I just think that the system and industry, the way that it lives right now, isn't, isn't geared up to serve them. And it might not be worth their money even, but I don't, you know, I, I just need 800 of them. Like I, <laughs> I don't need the numbers that, that DC needs. I don't need the numbers that Marvel needs to put out Spanish language comic book. I know IDW is, is starting to put out more Spanish language stuff. I know there's a couple other companies, you know, so it, it's a viable demographic and, and I don't mind being that kind of explorer out there, you know, uh, point person to kind of pull some of them in. Um, but uh, yeah, because, because my number is so low, like, you know, for me to make a, a successful campaign, 800 people for Marvel to justify doing a Spanish language book. And the, you know, the big companies have made their kind of half hearted attempts at, at uh, inclusion in this way, but they tend to just translate American heroes into Spanish and think that that's, that's engaged. You know, like I, I made, a Spanish, you know, like I made a, a Mexican hero done by a Mexican for Mexican, you know what I mean? It's like, you know, this is intrinsically and inherently Latino and, and uh, it's not just a, 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 a subtitle that we put on, on Spider-Man and said, oh, here's, here's your, you know, here's your, your inclusion. Like, mm-hmm. oh, well, that didn't work. And then they use it as an excuse to never do it again. I'm like, well, you didn't really, you weren't really inclusive. You kind of just translated the thing that was made for a completely different audience and then wondered why it didn't work. So I don't know. I'm, I'm, part of me wants to kind of like defiantly show that this can work 
but also that part of me wants to do it in the most authentic way. Like I'm not trying to hedge my bets. I'm not trying to, to, to play it safe and, you know, make four quadrant comics that are going to appeal to white people and brown people, you know, like, nah, man, like I, I know who I'm targeting and it's very specific, but again, I just need 800 of them. So, so I keep saying that. Oh, no worries. Uh, so Gonzo, this was yeah. excellent. I, I enjoyed the, the process talk and the story talk and I've been able to, to see, um, see the, the, the a preview of the book and the, the back material was, uh, was, uh, you know, really impressive. Uh, but as we close up here, how about if you give us a, uh, a, a like an elevator pitch uh, for, for anybody uh, that uh, wants to check out this Kickstarter? Um, so, hey, man, it, it, my elevator pitch is always like, do you remember when comics were fun? Like, these are fun comics. Like, I make, you know, I don't know. Do can you swear on your show? Do you, do you, yeah, you can. You okay. can. Uh, so the thing I always tell people is like, I make comic book ass comic books. Like, they're, <laughs> they're comic booky. Like, you know, they're not apologetic. They're not my movie pitch. Mm -hmm. They're not my TV show pitch. They're, you know, they're not my TV pilot. I, I make comics for people who like comics. So if you like comics and if you like, if you like comic book ass comic books, check it out. And if you like wrestling, especially because like it's, it's Lucha, Lucha Libre for people who like Lucha Libre. It's comics for people who like comics. And, and it is, it's like, you know, Latino culture for people who like the Latino culture. And it, it's not an approximation of any of those things. It is, it is full distilled versions of all of those things. So yeah, I mean, if you, if you just want, dumb fun comics in an exciting way uh in something you haven't seen in a while yeah, check it out so you know it's Uta libre it's latino culture it's silver age story killing uh it looks feels and smells like an old comic book so if you got any affinity for that uh, or if you you know if you're latino and you want something that speaks your language like literally come check it out so uh I, that's my short elevator pitch yeah awesome well i i appreciate it we're gonna have uh links to the to the kickstarter and uh, your social media and the and the show notes. So for anybody listening uh, that wants to go over there and check out the Kickstarter, um, it's it's going on now um, as we record. This is like the 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 middle part of September. So you got uh, you're, you're still pretty early on, and you're trying to go to yeah, yeah November third, right? Yep. Uh, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Awesome. Um, well, Jay, I, I appreciated you uh, coming on. I, I really like the book. Uh, I'm a backer, so I encourage everybody else to, to, to check it out. Um, and uh, it's been really great talking to you. Um, for anybody listening, if you could give us a rating and review on whatever podcasting service you use, we really appreciate it. If you want to follow the podcast, we're on social media. Twitter is at ConstructComPod. Instagram is ConstructingComics. Facebook and YouTube is Constructing Comics. And like I said, we're going to have a link to uh, Gonzo's Kickstarter in the uh, show notes. So please check it out. Um, I'd like to thank everybody for listening. Uh, please be safe, be nice to each other, and go out there and make some comics. <laughs>